You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from the song Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral, and you can check out all of the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. Find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece from breachrepairers.org. This is a statement uh, from the organization Repairers of the Breach. Um, This is a statement that they made during the Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington. We the thousands gathered here in active declaration of a rapidly growing front of organized moral fusion power and in deep solidarity with those rising up across this country who are demanding a reconstruction of this democracy and a reconstitution of the policy and legal priorities of this nation. Say, we are in a time of emergency. We gather in Washington, D.C. for a mass poor people's and low-wage workers' assembly and moral march on Washington and to the polls in a dark summer. As our democracy is threatened by a state-by-state coordinated assault on the right to vote, and imperiled by open violence, greed, obstruction, distortions, and denial, while more than 140 million poor and low-wealth people of every race, creed, religion, in every region of this country are rising up daily against growing indignities, pain, injury, and death at the hands of immoral policies and interlocking injustices. Even after historic numbers of people, including those gathered here, voted in 2020 and said we must do more in a collective act of faith, During the grief of a global pandemic, our democracy remains in an untenable, fragile place. It is bending under the unrelenting weight of an orchestrated attack on our rights to vote for the purpose of further entrenching anti-democratic non-majority power. And we are facing an attempt to stop the power of this movement and what our presence and witness represents. We see the truth and so we say the truth. If the assault on this democracy prevails, the consequences will be felt across generations. We see and say that we come here in the shadow of mass death, insurrection, and an attempted coup in a time in our nation's history when it is openly known that there are those in political office and running for political office who are working with grotesque resources to seek to overthrow the will of the people of the United States again. And we come with the sight and insight to see ahead of us to the generationally transformative resurrection possibilities of a third reconstruction of this democracy and this country. As we gather in Washington, D.C., before Congress, before this Supreme Court that unchecked 
threatens to decay our constitutionally protected right to justice and equal protection under the law. And before this White House, we declare that we know there are 143 days between today, June 18, 2022, and the last day of the midterm elections on November 8. On the ballot are 469 seats in Congress, 34 in the Senate, and 435 in the House. We stand together without the full protections of a restored Voting Rights Act, and we declare that we will use our full power to force this democracy to reckon with its people's plight. We will not be silenced, and we will not go unheard. This movement will not be turned around or turned back. Our votes are not supports, but demands to be heard and to take action. A movement that votes does not vote for any party nor any one person. We vote for our people and for our lives. We vote to summon a third reconstruction that can birth us out of an impoverished democracy and usher in a new world. To this purpose, one, we demand that every member of Congress publicly acknowledge the reality and pain of 140 million poor and low-wealth people, including 43% of our entire population and 52% of our children who have died at a rate of two to five times higher during this pandemic, and 250,000 of whom died from poverty and inequality every year, and recognize a moral crisis that must be corrected, reckoned with, and repaired. This is an emergency, and we need emergency action now to redress these injuries. Two, we demand every member of Congress commit to creating and supporting legislation that reflects the third reconstruction agenda developed by poor and low-wage communities. No action that is available to this Congress to relieve this injury and protect our democracy should be taken off the table, no matter how close we are to an election. 3. We demand a White House poverty summit with President Biden to allow this administration to meet with a delegation of poor and low-wealth people, religious leaders, and economists, and to commit to an executive action plan to eliminate poverty in 2022. 4. We declare that this campaign will engage in massive mobilization and outreach through every means available to us, by visits, letters, petitions, candidate forms, and phone calls, advocating for our current representatives to take action now to address the needs of 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country. We pledge to return to Washington, D.C. in September 2022 to join 5,000 poor and low-wealth people and religious leaders, along with 100 economists in nonviolent moral direct action in our next step of declaration and notification of these demands. 6. This campaign announces its launch of a nationwide effort for the next 143 days to register and educate poor and low-income communities to vote in every election for candidates who commit to a third reconstruction agenda to address poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. We must vote in historic numbers for our ancestors, for our children, and for the generations to come whose lives and planet are under threat today. 7. We declare that we are a movement that votes. We call on all poor and low-wealth people to march in mass assembly from here to the polls this, this November and to use your vote to make your voices heard. We will expand the we included in We the People 
and fight with every tool we have to ensure no voice is excluded from this democracy. No vote is denied, and no cry for justice rising up from this moral fusion movement is unrepresented at the ballot box. Forward together, not one step back. And uh, impacting the electoral system via our votes is important work. It is a very, very tough area to actually try to impact, to actually try to make change. So the work to do so is important, but it's also something that we can't simply rely on. We can't just say, once we elect the right people, that that work, while important and and work that can move us in a positive direction, uh, isn't sufficient because of the difficulty of getting enough of the right people um, to get enough power to make real change. There have been studies that have shown efforts by people to influence governments, to influence politicians, are rarely what drive legislation and what drive change. It is the efforts of the lobbyists, the industry groups that the politicians listen to and the politicians act for. So we have to go, We have, well, well, I don't want to advocate for not participating in the electoral system. I think we should participate in the electoral system. We should support people who support good policy, but if we want to really transform our society, we need to do much more. We need to really examine the systems that those people in power have built and sustained historically uh, and find ways we can subvert them and ways we can change them to be a more positive impact on the public. This next piece is published at aljazeera.com, written by Matthias Schmelzer and Aaron Van Sinjan. Degrowth is not austerity, it is actually just the opposite. Quote, we are living through the end of abundance, French President Emmanuel Macron recently declared after a summer that saw parts of Europe ravaged by forest fires and unprecedented heat and drought. Meanwhile, officials at the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve have warned of a larger, quote, sacrifice that will be needed to, quote, tame surging inflation. That sacrifice, of course, is the well-being of the working class. Whatever well-being actually exists. The language political and economic leaders are using to send a message to the public that it should prepare to accept the end of the limitless availability of products and resources may sound quite familiar to some. It was used in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, the recession of the early 1990s, and even the 1973 oil crisis, when politicians warned that the general population would need to tighten their belts and accept cutbacks on social welfare and services. 
But the past does not have to repeat. In this context of accelerating ecological breakdown and economic crises, the degrowth movement has steadily been gaining ground. Based on a robust body of scientific literature, degrowth proponents suggest that capitalism's demand for unlimited growth is destroying the planet. Only degrowth policies can repair this by rapidly scaling back our material and energy use, slowing down production and transitioning to an economy focused around needs, care, and the sharing of wealth. The term degrowth was first coined in 1972 by French political theorist André Gors as a provocative response to the Club of Rome's Limits to Growth report. In the 1990s, it was reintroduced as a missile word against the then-dominant ideology of sustainable development and green growth, an ideology that was being used by governments and international organizations to greenwash ineffective climate politics, attacks on public services, and predatory lending. Since then, degrowth's popularity has accelerated with regular conferences with thousands of attendees being held and dozens of books published on the subject. Most recently, the book Capitalism in the Anthropocene by Kohi Saito, a Japanese Marxist scholar, sold more than half a million copies and became a bestseller in Japan. Unsurprisingly, degrowth has come under severe criticism from pundits, mainstream economists, and the jet-setting Davos elite. In a March 2020 column, one member of a conservative British think tank, for example, claims that, quote, the coronavirus crisis reveals the misery of degrowth, that degrowth would make the recession permanent, or that it would be a recipe for misery and disaster. Indeed, this is how many people understand degrowth as a call for austerity and a trigger of recession. In reality, degrowth is just the opposite. To begin with, austerity is always imposed for the sake of growth. We have been convinced for half a century now that cutting public services is good for us because it will increase competitiveness, balance the budget, and eventually lead to growth. Degrowth, by contrast, is the argument that we can and should move away from an economy that exclusively depends on economic growth. While austerity increases inequality by curbing public services and benefiting the rich through tax cuts and privatization of government services, degrowth policies focus on democratizing production, curbing the wealth and overconsumption of the rich, expanding public services, and increasing equality within and between societies. Degrowth is also not a recession. Recessions are unintentional. Well, maybe. The Fed seems to be pushing towards an intentional recession right now. While degrowth is planned and intentional, recessions make inequality worse. Degrowth is about making sure everyone has their needs met. Recession often cause bold policies for sustainability to be abandoned for the sake of restarting growth, while degrowth is explicitly for a rapid and decisive transformation. Most of the crises we are experiencing right now, from absurd levels of inequality to supply chain shocks, inflation and ecological devastation, are caused by the growth-oriented capitalist economy. Because profits are based on making labor and nature as cheap as possible, the very basis of profit is always at risk. For example, through labor shortages or supply bottlenecks. 
Thus, constant economic expansion will also see constant crises. These crises present opportunities for capital. As argued by Naomi Klein in the book Shock Doctrine, crises are often taken advantage of by the owners of capital because they make it possible to thrash social and ecological legislation, thus lowering the cost of wages and resources, and further generating windfall profits through inflation. All of this comes hand in hand with offloading the costs of the crises onto the poor and the environment. Government services are axed to reduce government debt, wages are cut to increase profits, and extractive industries are stimulated to kickstart growth. Today we are promised by many political leaders, particularly in the West, that economic growth will be green. Yet infrastructure projects which will lock in fossil fuel use for decades continue to be built and expanded, while banks, energy companies, and multinationals that are involved in polluting and carbon-intensive industries are bailed out with public money and given lucrative government contracts. Amid the global economic crisis, fossil capital and big banks, which hold large shares in the oil industry, are enjoying a record profit bonanza. Meanwhile, we are seeing a drastic decline in wages in Europe. Globally, for the first time in decades, there is a catastrophic decline in development indicators. A recent UN report found that 9 out of 10 countries worldwide have fallen behind on life expectancy, education, and living standards. For decades, international organizations have promised to fight global inequality and poverty with growth, but the results are anything but promising. Of all the wealth produced between 1995 and 2021 globally, the top 1% captured 38%, while the bottom 50% captured a shocking 2%. At the same time, the brunt of the social and ecological costs of this impoverishing growth, as evidenced by droughts, fires, and floods around the world, are largely borne by the poor. Degrowth proponents clearly see that the government's obsession with growth always leads to sacrificing the poor. That is why they argue for moving away from the dependence on growth to meet the well-being needs of the general population. How would this be done? A key part would be to guarantee access to universal basic services like housing, food, health care, mobility, and child care to the general population by taking them out of the market. There are already examples of such policies giving positive results. Germany's three-month experiment with a $9 monthly ticket for all regional and city public transport could serve as an example. It not only reduced carbon dioxide emissions by 1.8 million tons, equivalent to powering about 350,000 homes per year, but it also helped mitigate the effects of high inflation rates, increased freedom of mobility for all, and was quite popular with the public. This policy is a great example of what we call in our book, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. Politics of Public Abundance, an economy where everyone has enough to meet their needs, and more, based on public services and community-run commons. What would this look like? We can turn the millions of empty houses and condos, which exist as purely speculative assets, into cooperatives or social housing. We can expand public transport to make mobility available to everyone, regardless of fuel prices. We can make energy publicly owned, democratically run, and truly sustainable and affordable. 
We can even set up cafeterias that offer food for everyone at a low cost in every neighborhood, something that many countries, including Britain, have historically done in times of hardship. And we can end the practice of planned obsolescence that makes everything, from printers to smartphones to clothes, break early, be purposefully made to, too slow to use, or fall out of fashion. From tool libraries, where we can take out tools like drills or sewing machines from the library instead of everyone buying their own, to childcare collectives, such as those in Quebec, available at low cost to every parent. We can ensure that the basics of life, as well as the fun things in life, are available to everyone. This would mean living, that living a sustainable life would not be just for those who can afford to buy an electric car or organic food. What is more, adopting such policies would actually drastically reduce energy use and the amount of stuff we produce, as people would have much less need for it. We would meet well-being standards while reducing waste in the material intensity of the economy we rely on. And there are more and more studies that show that this can be done. For example, a 2020 research paper on energy sufficiency found that it is possible to provide a decent life to the entire global population at 40% of current energy use, despite population growth until 2050. While the details may be debated, it is clear that reducing the excess energy and resources use of the rich and making designs more efficient within the framework of a truly circular economy have huge potential to reduce demand. For example, an estimated 57 million tons of electronics were thrown away in 2021. That is bigger than the Great Wall of China. If we only design smartphones, TVs, and other appliances to last twice as long as they currently do, we could reduce this by half right away, without reducing well-being, but probably reducing profits. A degrowth economy would be much more efficient in translating drastically reduced levels of energy and resource throughput into high levels of well-being. It could be financed through redistribution and public money, restructuring the monetary and financial system so that we no longer depend on private capital to invest in the public good. Certainly, life would look a lot different. Many people would likely possess fewer material objects, but most would have access to better services and society would be more sustainable, just, convivial, and fulfilling. In essence, degrowth aims at a society in which well-being is mediated less by capitalist market transactions, exchange values, or material consumption, and more by collective forms of providing shared human values and meaningful social relationships. As one degrowth slogan states, moins de bien, plus de lien. Fewer things, more relations. A degrowth economy would be the inversion of austerity. For the majority, it would mean a more abundant, more convivial, more fulfilling lifestyle. For the wealthy few, it would mean the end of private abundance, excess emissions, and concentrated power. For humanity, it would be our only shot at a future worth living in. Next up is a piece published at uh, jacobin.com. This one is written by Adrian Buller and Matthew Lawrence. Throughout the pandemic and the period of economic pain it brought, 
the news cycle has been gripped by a series of mounting disasters. Global vaccine apartheid, the result of the Global North's refusal to allow non-proprietary sharing of vaccine technology, meant that by late 2021, 80% of adults in the EU were fully vaccinated, but only 9.5% of people in low-income countries had received a single dose. As housing wealth surged to record highs, renters have endured ongoing insecurity. As up to 500 million people were thrown into extreme poverty, with the incomes of 99% of the world's population falling between March 2020 and October 2021, the wealth of the world's 10 richest men doubled to $1.5 trillion, and a new billionaire was minted every 17 hours. Since then, spiraling energy prices have driven acutely painful inflation across much of the world, with projections suggesting an astonishing two-thirds of UK households could be in fuel poverty by next year, even as energy producers and suppliers maintain enormous profits and payouts. And beneath it all, the climate and ecological emergencies have continued to unfurl at an astonishing pace. Unprecedented droughts grip the agricultural regions of Europe, Temperatures in parts of England surpass 40 degrees Celsius, and fires tear through carbon offset sites across the world, sending the promise of carbon sequestration up in smoke. None of these events are isolated. Rather, they are the fruits of a particular social and economic arrangement. The crises we face today are both overlapping and unevenly felt, and running through each is an essential thread the way ownership is currently organized. The pandemic set alight the mass of dry tinder piled up over decades in which the rights of property have been prioritized over collective well-being. Power is determined by the distribution and nature of property rights, thus how our economy is owned and in whose interest this power is exercised decisively shapes our societies and our lives. And that goes back to the point I was making earlier about individuals and small groups and small organizations trying to have influence over the power in our society and the the governmental power represented by our elected representatives. We, We don't have the power to do that. But the folks who own the economic system, the folks who own the means of production, do exercise that power and they exercise it to serve their own needs to the detriment of many of the rest of the people. This may seem like an obvious point. Property relations and the distribution of property have always been vital in determining how an economy is structured and whose interest it serves. Baronial possession of land shaped feudalism. Colonial dispossession underpinned the accumulation of empire. Slave ownership enabled phenomenal wealth and violence in slaver societies. And still today, it is the interests of asset owners that largely dictate how our economies are run and our resources organized. These structures evolved over time. They are neither neutral nor fixed. The rules governing property rights reflect the ebb and flow of power within a society. This insight actually should offer some hope. Ownership is not the sole determinant of social and economic outcomes. 
but it is a thread that connects the immense challenges we face, as well as the many ways in which we might strive to overcome them by reimagining and transforming it. The UK is presently gripped by a cost-of-living crisis marked by surging inflation driven, largely, by commodities fundamental to life. Fuel, energy, food. At the same time, shareholders of the major utility companies, alongside the fossil fuel producers providing the gas they distribute, continue to benefit from enormous dividends and share buybacks. Ownership here is doubly pivotal. First, it undergirds an inflationary environment in which the poorest households could see an 18% rise in their costs due to their greater relative spending on the essentials, food, energy, and rent most gripped by soaring prices. Second, a particular regime of ownership serves to justify enormous payouts to shareholders amid this suffering, including through its role in enmeshing pensioners within the financial system, allowing record dividends and buybacks to be excused by policymakers and commentators based on the false supposition that they pay pensioners incomes. Or take the energy crisis. While the immediate cause is the explosion in wholesale oil and gas prices, the way this has been refracted through society, making a few winners and many losers, is inseparable from how our energy system is owned and the logics the for-profit corporate ownership model imparts. For example, this year, BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Total made underlying profits of nearly $100 billion in the first half of 2022, three times their earnings of the same period in 2021. In some senses, distributing gains to shareholders could be better from a climactic perspective than additional capital expenditure on new fossil fuel infrastructure. But this implies an imagined future in which the fossil fuel giants simply wind themselves down, something directly contradicted by their published plans and ongoing investment in both extraction and exploration. ExxonMobil spent more than double in 2020 on executive pay than it did on low-carbon capital expenditures in the past year. At a time when energy bills are eye-watering, they could be squeezing their margins to ease the pressure on households and businesses. Instead, the energy giants are using the crisis to transfer vast wealth from households and businesses to shareholders. We should, however, expect little different. The alpha and the omega of these companies is maximizing returns to their shareholders, extracting wealth from the many for the few. Nor is the crisis a particular shift in this pattern of energy companies geared towards the interests of wealthy asset holders over ordinary working people. Between 2010 and 2020, for example, BP and Shell spent over £147.2 billion on stock buybacks and dividends while the U.S. Big Five oil and gas companies paid out over $200 billion to shareholders between 2015 and 2020. While the energy companies stand out in scale, the economy as a whole is little different in operation. Wherever we turn, from private equity's growing grip on adult social care, to the financialization of housing, to the pressure on real wages even as corporate profits boom, we see the same pattern. Extractive ownership models drive the inequalities of the asset economy, in which those that work produce wealth for those that own. 
In many senses, the contemporary capitalist system is ruthlessly effective, doing precisely what it is designed to do, accumulate, enclose, concentrate, and expand for the benefit of those who own. It has generated extraordinary wealth, but in doing so, has made its hallmark poverty amid unprecedented plenty. Now the same processes of concentration and closure and extraction built into its design are beginning to exhaust the very sources of social and ecological wealth that capitalist economies rely upon to reproduce themselves. Against this, an alternative agenda that challenges the inequalities of the asset economy must be systemic in orientation. The institutions of the extractive economy must be democratized from the corporation to capital markets. Through new tools of public planning and inclusive ownership, the ubiquitous extraction of rent from utilities to housing must be challenged through an expansive wave of decommodification that replaces financialized access to life's essentials with public provision. And privatized enclosure must be met with a new era of commoning of land, nature, and technologies. In short, to challenge the primacy of property, we must democratize production, decommodify life's essentials, and defend the commons. The primacy of property was established through a state-led political agenda that did not just privatize and outsource, but used fiscal and monetary policy to prioritize and inflate the wealth of asset owners. Reversing this will be critical to reshaping the role of ownership in our societies. If the slogan of capital's revolt in the 1970s was stabilize prices, crush labor, discipline the South, the admittedly bulkier slogan of the politics aiming to end its rule should instead proclaim, democratize the economy, decommodify the foundations of life, defend the commons. We have the resources and capabilities today to guarantee material security and the fundamentals of a good life for everyone on earth. I'm going to repeat that. We have the resources and capabilities today to guarantee material security and the fundamentals of a good life for everyone on earth. There is no need to wait for some imagined technological liberation nor justification for doing so. Democratizing ownership can redistribute power and the gains of collective enterprise. Decommodifying provision of the goods and infrastructures we need can free us from market dependency while ensuring everyone has access to life's necessities. And defending and expanding the commons can bring assets under shared stewardship for the common good. This is ultimately a project of democracy, the extension of democratic principles and relationships into spaces currently ruled by private property. If neoliberalism is a project of state power to defend property against popular demands for more equal reordering, the counter-movement insists instead that the economy is a socially made entity that democratic power can restructure. A democratic economy is one in which the principles of democracy we are all familiar with extend beyond the political system and into our workplaces and communities, and where we re-extend common control over how the economy functions to expand human freedom.
The freedom of some cannot be based on the exploitation of others, nor exercised through unjustifiable hierarchies. It is therefore incompatible with the private regimes of power that capitalist property relations generate. Instead, freedom is a shared project. Individual liberty is secured through collective emancipation. Fundamental to this must be a politics committed to reimagining our systems of ownership and control. There is no single party, tradition, or movement that can or should do this alone. We need a mass popular front that spans diverse groups. The story that needs to be told is clear. The extraordinary potential of the many is held back by the institutions that shape our lives and communities, institutions that consolidate wealth and power while inflicting violence on communities and the natural world by prioritizing property at the expense of urgent needs. The political right defends and reproduces this configuration. To overcome it, a new bloc must contest and reimagine institutions of ownership and control to build an alternative, inclusive, and thoroughly democratic society. Building an agency and democratic control into every sphere of life can help counter the justified disillusionment with the political system and its agents that many across the political spectrum feel. To win, we urgently need to move from a moral critique of the present to standing against the forces and institutions that generate these injustices with a credible plan for dismantling them and erecting in their place something new. It's time we owned the future. And we don't need to wait for this block to come together to join forces and to become a, a, a source of power and a source of change. We can do this on a small scale where we are um, and build our own local structures that will eventually come together and coalesce into this block. It's the only way we can do it. The block is not going to form out of uh, enough people listening to this podcast and hearing this idea and saying, I'm in. The block is going to form by enough people out there building these structures, building these structures on a small scale, on a local scale, and expanding them into networks and those networks uh, expanding and growing and coming together into this block of power that is needed to implement the bigger changes. Here's an example of one of these local efforts. This piece is from yesmagazine.org. It's written by Mike DeSocio. From the outside, Cafe Euphoria might seem like any other coffee shop in downtown Troy, New York an upstate New York City of 50,000 that has a cafe on practically every block. But inside this brick storefront, something much more radical is brewing, a business model that could upend the traditional capitalistic business structure. Quote, We are anti-capitalist in our composition to the core, says Atsushi Akera, general manager of Cafe Euphoria, which also includes a co-working space and a curated thrift shop. We're trying to create an alternative economic system that goes against the traditional ways of doing things, one that's based on principles of equity, inclusion, all of that. 
Cafe Euphoria has a radical and unique approach. The business is a worker-owned cooperative run by a group of eight transgender and gender non-conforming folks who are all paid the same wage, $18 an hour, with a goal to raise that wage over time until it reaches $32 an hour. The model is meant to lift employees out of poverty. According to a recent study by UCLA, almost a third of trans adults in the U.S. were living in poverty in 2019. The aim is to ensure the cafe breaks even with income covering all expenses. Akara says the cafe currently makes between $200 and $400 a day during the week and up to $4,000 on a busy weekend. She estimates the cafe will break even after about 14 months and be able to increase wages after two or three years. There's no investors, so there's no profit. We push everything out in wages. So the idea is to balance things out, Agara says. The desire for better wages and more sustainable work-life balance has become a focus of worker concerns in the U.S. throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Workers have also been seeking alternatives to the top-down corporate model that disempowers them. The quote, great resignation, as well as a number of high-profile unionization drives, show that workers, baristas included, have had enough. Starbucks shops nationwide are voting to unionize, and independent coffee shops are trying out even more progressive policies. Co-ops have increasingly been hiring people, quote, who have really been excluded from decent work, says Micah Josephy, executive director of the Cooperative Fund of the Northeast. That could be for a lot of reasons. They haven't been able to access decent education. There's discrimination by people doing hiring that exclude them from the workforce could be that there are jobs in their sector, but that those jobs are dangerous or they're just structured in a way that's not worker-centric. Worker co-ops are a way to center workers in how you structure the work. At Cafe Euphoria, the worker-centered economic model was not initially the main goal, but has quickly become a defining feature of the business. The idea for the cafe emerged from a virtual support group during the pandemic focused on trans and gender non-conforming folks. While the community was strong at first, it frayed as in-person activities restarted and virtual spaces lost their luster. That's when Akara posed a question to the group. What if we create a transgender cafe? The main thing is that we were driven more by the social mission than by the idea of a worker-owned cooperative. So it was, we're creating a safe space for the trans and the gender non-conforming community, Akara explains. And then we said, and we are a cooperative, so everybody gets paid the same. Josephy says that this is a very common path into the co-op world. A business will start out with a social mission and realize that a worker co-op is an effective means of achieving it. One of the things that democratic workplaces can do is allow people to bring in aims that are not merely economic aims, says Joe Marfino, a loan and outreach officer at the Cooperative Fund of the Northeast, who has been advising Akara as the cafe gets off the ground. Cafe Euphoria is still smoothing out the kinks, but here's how its co-op model works. The wage for all positions starts at $18 an hour, which comprises $13.20 in actual wages and $4.80 in member equity. Consistent with the principles of a worker co-op, all employees are offered an ownership stake of the cafe after working their first 50 hours. 
That means that as member owners, all of the workers have an equal say in the direction of the business and own a real asset in the form of member equity. Depending on how the co-op is structured, that equity can be accessed over time or when a worker exits the business. When wages do reach $32 an hour, the increase will also apply retroactively, Akara says, meaning workers will be paid the difference for all previous hours worked at the lower wage. There's no set time frame for the increases because that will depend on revenue growth. We're still learning what that number needs to be, Akara says. Historically, food service is an industry that underpays their workers, so this will be a challenge for us. But we're looking for ways to beat the curve. Our tips so far have been close to 25% because of the tremendous support out there for our community. The commitment to equity, however, goes beyond the cafe workers. Everything at Cafe Euphoria, from the coffee and muffins to the thrifted clothing, is priced on a 3 to 1 sliding scale. Customers whose self-reported income is above $62,000 are asked to pay the highest price, say $18 for a lunch. Anyone who makes less than that is welcome to pay the middle price, which might go down to $12. Then the lowest solidarity price, say $6, is intended, quote, primarily for members of the trans and gender nonconforming community who cannot pay the middle price, Akara says. It is all self-declared. You don't have to explain a thing. You just tell us what discount to apply, and we'll apply the discount, she explains. The sliding scale makes Cafe Euphoria somewhat of an outlier, even in the socially progressive world of co-ops, Marafino says. They're asking their customers to have an experience of solidarity and not just to maximize their individual gain, he explains. They're putting their social aims and their beliefs on their sleeve and hoping that the people reciprocate. So far, they have. Akira says 94% of customers are opting for the top of the sliding scale. It's a reflection of growing consumer appetite for equitable business practices. If their model is radical, their timing is right, says Marafino. Often he'll point out that they are diverging from traditional work co-op practices, but it doesn't seem to bother them much. This is a different type of organization that is trying to break boundaries, he says. While Cafe Euphoria's plans are ambitious, the staff's experience so far also underlines some essential truths. The cafe has already been forced to make compromises and has hit more than a few road bumps trying to operate within its model. Take one relatively simple piece of most businesses, running meetings. Without a traditional hierarchy in place, the Cafe Euphoria staff at first struggled to hold discussions that allowed everyone to contribute without the discussion descending into chaos. That is one of our challenges because people can understand a co-op in principle but to understand it in practice is very hard, Akira says. After a few iterations, they found something that works. Each meeting starts with a brief general manager's report, and then everyone suggests agenda items that are voted on and ranked, setting the course for the remainder of the meeting. Cafe Euphoria, like many worker co-ops, also invests heavily in worker training. In trying to solve a labor, labor problem, hiring and paying a historically excluded community In the historically underpaid service industry, the cafe has a much different labor pool than its peers. We're picking good people, but we don't necessarily have all the skills, says Akira. That applies to her as well. Akira has a long career as an academic, and for the cafe's early months, continued to work full-time as a professor in the Department of Science and Technology Studies 
at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where she says she earned more than enough money to live a comfortable life. She retired from her academic post on June 30 to focus full-time on the cafe, where her compensation will take the form of member equity instead of a wage, at least until the cafe is on stronger financial footing. Quote, I'm a professor. I've never created a restaurant before. I've never managed a business before. So there's a lot of figuring out that goes on. But overcoming these hurdles can allow entire communities and industries to reimagine their relationship with work. Josephine and Marafino say a lot of the service sector workers in particular are now seeking out worker co-ops as a way to continue doing what they love while seeking economic empowerment. And it's not just new businesses that are using this model. Josephine and Marafino are also seeing a lot of conversions, especially as older generation of business owners retires and looks for a way to sustain their enterprise. One recent example is a white electric coffee co-op, a cafe in Providence, Rhode Island, that was purchased by its own employees and converted into a worker co-op. Chloe Chasang, a worker owner at White Electric, says a conversion to a co-op came from a desire to increase transparency and improve labor practices at the cafe. A year after the conversion, the shop's 13 workers have hammered out a model that works for them. The formerly haphazard pay and raise structure has been flattened out with a higher base wage and a plan to give 4% annual raises to everyone. All of the workers, many of whom are black, indigenous, people of color, women, queer, working class, or first generation, or children of immigrants, are offered an ownership stake in the business after their first six months of employment. The equity buy-in is $100 with the option to contribute more in each paycheck and workers get the money back if they decide to leave. No one is looking to get rich off of this. We just want decent jobs and to be able to have a say in them, Chisang says. The model can allow historically marginalized communities, such as formerly incarcerated people or immigrants or transgender folks, to access jobs and wealth that otherwise might never be available to them, according to Marafino. What better way to transcend workplace discrimination than to own the workplace. And uh, here's another way folks are building these new alternative types of uh, structures that will support a future economy. This piece is from truthout.org. This is written by Ella Fassler. We all love a good bargain and are sometimes willing to go to great lengths to secure one. But for a few hours at Woodbine, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, New York, thrifting was entirely free and there wasn't a catch. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a flood of people showed up to the space 30 minutes before its free store event was supposed to begin. At a free store, people are encouraged to bring things they no longer need, but are too nice to throw away and take things that they want or need without any questions asked. It's meant to be an experimental space for building an economy based in solidarity, not sales or barter, and to harness the immense amounts of waste and excess generated in capitalist economies. Pop-up models encourage people to congregate in one space on a particular day, and the momentary disruption of norms generates a buzzy atmosphere that can be conducive for building community. Putting the free store together was fairly simple. 
Most of us involved in organizing it met through Woodbine's soccer teams. We transitioned from running around scoring goals and high-fiving each other on the field to running around with heaps of donated clothes, toys, home goods, and electronics that our neighbors donated. We plastered flyers in English, Spanish, Arabic, and Mandarin around the neighborhood and on Woodbine's social media accounts to spread the word. We borrowed tables and clothing racks from Mil Mundos, a bookstore curated to celebrate Black, Latinx, and Indigenous heritage in neighboring Bushwick that frequently hosts clothing swaps and distributions with free items and brought leftover items to other community-based groups after the free store ended. During the free store, the atmosphere was fairly chaotic and crowded, and it was difficult to stay on top of organizing donations. But overall, the event didn't require that much time or labor. I overheard someone saying, they are subverting the store, which is exactly what we are trying to do. Under the logic of capitalism, you only deserve to, quote, make a living if you sell yourself and your labor power to a capitalist. At a free store, the criteria for participating is simply being alive. And on a side note, this, quote, making a living, this this construct, this idea we've been embedded with in our education and our media and and this worst term the cost of living i just saw a, a tweet this week that says something to the effect of how did we how did we let this term become something that we believe in what an absurd absurd thing the cost of living why do we accept systems in which there is a cost, in which there is a price that we must pay for living? Once you think about the manipulation, once you think about the, uh, the propaganda that has been embedded within us to make us believe in certain things to make us believe that certain ways of doing things that certain structures and systems once you understand and question that propaganda then you start to embark on a path of being open to alternatives and from there you continue on the path to developing alternatives and making systems that serve human needs instead of systems that serve the few. People who benefit from the current system, landlords, police, politicians, and bosses, rely on mass media and our schooling systems to deceive and dull the population into believing capitalism is the most efficient way or the only viable way of producing and distributing resources. As British philosopher Mark Fisher famously wrote, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But what currently exists is one way of organizing a society of many, and it isn't serving most of us. An ability to imagine and create non-hierarchical alternatives threatens the authority of people benefiting from the current system. At a free store, we can begin to glimpse a world where everything is free and built on voluntary exchange of labor, resources, and knowledge. The free store concept is far from new. Up against the wall motherfuckers, a street gang with analysis, 
organized free stores in New York City during the late 1960s. The Diggers, a radical theater group, popularized them in San Francisco in New York City with dramatic flair and humor. For them, everything was theater, and people were actors who could create the reality they wished to see together. Quote, when materials are free, they wrote in 1968, imagination becomes currency for spirit. Young black revolutionaries involved with the Diggers opened a black people's free store in the Fillmore Ghetto of San Francisco in 1967. One of the organizers, Roy Ballard, explained how the free store was opening the minds of people in his community in an interview with the publication Venture. Quote, Our thing in the store is not the black and white issue. We're far from that. Here in the store, we welcome everybody. The only way we're going to bring about change is people communicating. Once a person closes his mind, that's it. Things become one-sided. Brother, I'm going to keep my mind open. This store is bringing about a hell of a lot of wisdom. It's helping a lot of young ones on the street who are coming in here. And it's opening their minds to where it's really at. That's our whole thing here in this store. Opening minds. To share. To make understanding. To feel for each other. What I'm thinking is what would happen if black people could disaffiliate from money altogether. More recently, anarchists started organizing Really Really Free Markets, RRFMs, throughout the 2000s, which tend to be pop-up events across the United States. These markets never completely dwindled, but if media coverage is to be an accurate benchmark of organizing efforts, there seems to have been an uptick in RRFMs over the past couple years. Collectives are organizing them in cities large and small, from Louisville, Kentucky, Corvallis, Oregon, Avon, North Carolina, Ypsilanti, Michigan, Tempe, Arizona, New Paul's, New York, Athens, Georgia, Jersey City, New Jersey, and in many other locations. From 2015 to 2019, some of the only media coverage of free stores was Amazon's so-called free stores, which are just dystopian stores that rely on automation and surveillance to build customers without a physical checkout line. In 2022, anti-capitalist free store spaces seem to be gaining resurgence alongside the mutual aid networks that have blossomed out of the COVID-19 pandemic. A network of free community fridges in Atlanta that arose during the pandemic supported the opening of the Grocery Spot, a pay-what-you-can grocery store. In March 2022, groceries are free for anyone who can't pay, and community members with means for paying or donating are encouraged to do so. It's also a community space that hosts bonfires, film screenings, and holiday events in their lawn. They've seen an influx of shoppers during the summer months in the midst of rising inflation. Meanwhile, up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a nonprofit relied on increased food donations during the pandemic to kickstart the opening of two free grocery stores. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Richmond Mad RVA is renting a space to open a free store this fall in Northside, a lower-income neighborhood and food desert in Richmond, Virginia. Originally, throughout much of the pandemic, the collective ran a free supply drive out of a warehouse where volunteers ran a hotline and delivered requested items to people's homes. But Tamana Sohal, an organizer with Mad RVA, told me that they received feedback from supply drive participants that they wanted more agency over the items they received. 
the supply drive model was less able to cater to individualized needs because the group had a limited inventory and people weren't able to select the brands they wanted. Mad RVA organizers anticipate having a much larger inventory at the free store and people will be able to select what they want or need at the space. A big part of what we want to do with the free store is prioritize people's choices and what they're getting and in their autonomy, she said. We're also prioritizing accessibility in terms of location, how our shelves are set up, and what we're offering. Sohal also emphasized the collective's desire to facilitate connections and relationships in the neighborhood. People can come in with their kids and sit down or sit outside and rest and chat. We've been talking about having a really big, comfy seating area and sitting options outside, she said. We know the power of talking to your neighbors, and we're hoping that having a physical free store will allow conversations between neighbors so that people are letting people around them know that this resource exists. Maybe neighbors will pick up groceries for each other. In Chicago, several collectives opened a volunteer-run free store at a church in Rogers Park during the pandemic, and they recently moved into their own space. Neighbors came together to build a do-it-yourself free store outdoors in Clinton Hill, Gowanus, and Ujama in New York City. In January 2022, mutual aid organizers opened a free store in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a married couple used their retirement savings to open a free store and community fridge in Dublin, Virginia, a town with just over 2,500 people in 2021. There's a really high rate of poverty in Pulaski County and in a lot of southwestern Virginia, and it's really common for a lot of places that do offer help to do a lot of means testing and put other barriers in between people and help, Hazel Wines, an organizer involved in the free store, told VPM News. And we wanted to remove those barriers and just be a place where people could help each other. It's not just food. It's not just clothes. Everyone deserves to live a life of dignity, and we want to help provide that. All of these efforts ultimately follow in the footsteps of some indigenous societies, like the Navajos, that reproduced communal living for centuries. Colonizers attempted to destroy indigenous communalism on Turtle Island through warfare and by enacting laws like the Dawes Act, which enforced private property and dissolved 90 million acres of indigenous communal land holdings. Indigenous communalism underpinned the culture and economy at Standing Rock in 2016 by offering massive tents full of free items, like sleeping bags and blankets. Meals were cooked and served collectively for free. One attendee who spent several weeks at Standing Rock expressed shock after being asked to pay for food again at a store once he left the camp. Despite centuries of colonialist violence, cooperation is still a glue that holds societies together. When we are invited to a dinner party, we may bring a dish over. If it's raining outside, we give our friends an umbrella. We cooperate with colleagues at our workplaces every day. As the late anthropologist David Graeber and political theorist Andre Grubacek wrote, quote, Communism is not an abstract, distant ideal impossible to maintain, but a lived, practical reality we all engage in daily to different degrees, and that even factories could not operate without it. Even if much of it operates on the slide between the cracks or shifts or informally or in what's not said or entirely subversively. Free stores embody these nascent communistic impulses, pulling them out of the informal cracks 
and into the public sphere. As isolated, sparse units, free stores lack the resiliency and resources needed to build power on a scale needed to challenge the capitalist economy. But what if free stores spread in a given city to include 10, 20, or 30 hubs? And what if they mutually supported each other while coordinating with other grassroots organizers, farmers, builders, and designers who were willing to contribute their talents and resources to the projects? A well-coordinated network of free store hubs could begin to act as building blocks for moving beyond the capitalist economy and toward one that we co-produce together. And finally for this episode, this piece is written by Melissa Hoover and Esteban Kelly. It's published at nonprofitquarterly.org. It's thrilling to see how much interest there is in building democratic futures that center people, communities, solidarity, and ecology in our economic system. We, the co-authors of this article, have been engaged in just that for the past 20-plus years. We have a close, wide, and deep perspective on the emergence of a more democratic economy. Indeed, we have some thoughts about the next horizon of that work. For the past decade, the primary questions for those seeking to expand the democratic economy in the United States have focused on scale. Are we capable of larger projects? Is it possible to scale elements like worker cooperatives, participatory budgeting, community land trusts, and non-extractive finance? Such questions are inadvertently limiting. We've known for years that the solidarity economy can scale, And yet too much energy that could have been channeled into developing it has instead been devoted to raising awareness and producing data about whether that leap is even possible. We don't mean to imply that such efforts were fruitless. Indeed, compiling data along these lines was essential for garnering support among elected officials, government workers, foundation program officers, lenders, investors, and other power brokers new to the field and unfamiliar with the viability, let alone the imperative of expanding the democratic economy as a path towards a just, sustainable, and equitable economy. We suspect all this itching around scale and proof of concept is merely a proxy for implicit questions of vision. Put another way, curiosity about scale is one way of provoking debate about what we're even hoping to build. What animates questions of scale may be just the provocation to share what it actually looks like, when an economy serves and is accountable to people and communities by design. The choices we make over the coming years will be critical to either hampering or catalyzing a democratic transition rooted in worker and community ownership and control. To be sure, we're not suggesting that even a turbocharged transition would land us at such a vision a mere few years from now. Rather, a strategic, resilient, resourced, and supported network of leaders, institutions, and infrastructure might, over the next decade or so, create fertile soil for such transformations to take root and ultimately flourish. What evidence is there for the viability of a democratized economy when so many of its elements across this country have languished as marginal, quote, experiments for generations? The problem starts as a discursive one. For half a century, cooperatives and our allies in the United States 
have oriented towards institutions of a democratic economy as an alternative to traditional American business as usual, dispossession, extraction, pollution, exploitation, and inequality. In this, we include the leaders of such initiatives themselves. In the black community, going on several generations now, we have used the language of economic alternatives for self-sufficient societies. Only recently are some of our leaders agitating to shift from language that doesn't presume to displace the exploitation of racial capitalism, which otherwise will ravage our people for what would become a fifth century. Visions of a Solidarity Economy Four Scenarios Without a mindset that a robust solidarity economy is possible beyond a few marginalized projects, most of the key agents of change have not been positioned to offer a vision for transformative possibilities. And yet so many parts of that vision are already present for us to observe. We could simply look beyond the United States as proof that a democratized economy can transform society. See, for example, Northern Italy's Reggio Emilia approach, a primary instrument of early childhood education. Quebec's forestry and EMT services, industrial mainstays for the region. Scaled cooperative guilds of freelancers, primarily composed of artists and creatives in Belgium and France. India's self-employed women's association, the country's largest organizing means for women's collective empowerment. And Argentina's and the Basque country's worker cooperatives, engines of industrial output. Even just within the United States, we can already track strong signals of the rise of a democratic economy at a scale that was difficult but not impossible to imagine back in 2012. In the last year, Philadelphia and parts of California, including San Francisco, Los Angeles, and the East Bay, have cleared their first hurdle to allocate money to established public banks, the likes of which only previously existed for the state of North Dakota. Puerto Rico has had a cooperative curriculum integrated into public schools for decades, reaching tens of thousands of students. It is no accident that the island boasts more worker cooperatives than any U.S. state or territory other than California and New York. We are also seeing larger enterprises thanks to the use of digital platforms. The Drivers Cooperative, for example, established in 2020 as a Democratic rival to Uber and Lyft, recruited somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 workers within a few months of its launch. What's more, we are living in the transformative times, in the midst and continuing effects of the still-raging COVID-19 pandemic and ongoing and ever-deepening racial, economic, and climate injustice. Things that recently seemed like far-fetched alternatives now appear as the only path for resilience under unprecedented pressures. With the recent great resignation and newfound labor militancy, workers across the country are increasingly choosing unions, cooperatives, and worker ownership as a way into the economy when they have no other alternatives. Young people, particularly attuned to the contradictions of our current system, with the total amount of student debt load surpassing $1.6 trillion, are demanding that the debt be canceled. Housing shortages and unaffordability are stoking interest in, and organizing of, a new wave of permanent real estate cooperative land trusts and the Vienna model of green social housing. 
as well as a retreat from expensive cities, scrambling demographics in unpredictable patterns. Heightened crises in consciousness provide a different set of political and movement-building conditions. Even the government eventually mobilized in unforeseen ways in the wake of COVID-19. In 2020, we saw the final tools of government briskly deployed. Everyday people got a taste of what the world's wealthiest economies are capable of. Unemployment benefits for most workers, monthly child tax credit payments, stimulus checks, free COVID tests and vaccines, even for the uninsured, and forgiveness of small business loans powered by the SBA and underwritten by banks and CDFIs. Indeed, these dramatic shifts in how public infrastructure intervened with the visionary economic policy were so expansive that they also watered our little seeds of a solidarity economy. Thanks to the institution building and leadership development of the past decade, multiple democratic economy organizations were in a position to inform the drafting of the CARES Act and ensure that previous government obstacles were removed in order for cooperative economic constituents to receive economic rescue support. 3,000 or more co-ops of all types access Paycheck Protection Program and or economic injury disaster loans, unlocking $1.2 billion in financial assistance to cooperative sectors and preventing countless co-ops from going under. All of this is evidence that we ought to seriously consider visions of what a more democratic economy might look like 10 or 15 years from now. Such visions are meant to provoke our action in the present, informing the choices we make now to shape our preferred future. It is in this spirit that we offer not one static vision, but rather a glimpse of how solidarity economy might show up in four very different scenarios. Scenario 1. The World We Know. Obstruction. In a scenario without much further disruption and with current trends enduring, what might a more democratized economy look like by the mid-2030s? A status quo world could see a democratized economy stagnate. It's entirely possible that the government never becomes the partner we need in order to scale the democratic economy in the United States. In this future, by 2035, there has been a host of so-called messaging bills promoting public banks, regenerative economics, green social housing, and worker ownership introduced around the country, but few are ever enacted as law. In the executive branch, the small business development centers stubbornly resist changing the 7A SBA loan conditions that require a personal guarantee for every co-owner of a loan to co-sign and put up collateral in order to access this federal business debt program. This effectively disbars cooperative and community-owned enterprises from tapping into federal programs and their cash of low-interest finance capital. Perhaps the experimentation of the 2020s amounted to nothing fundamentally groundbreaking. A flurry of platform co-ops and legal and hybrid structures attempt to include more members in the democratized economy, but few of these models proliferate beyond marginal success. Even then, some of the previous decade's innovations, particularly with LLC co-ops and nonprofit community land trusts, remain the last vestige of experimental new forms of economic solidarity. The United States misses an opportunity to foster learning and exchange with a growing international network building a democratic economy. 
and is ultimately left behind. Rather than growing steadily, ESOPs lose power under attacks from private equity. Though they still outnumber worker cooperatives, that gap begins to narrow and experiments with democratic ESOPs remain just that, seeing little uptake in most dem- democratized models. U.S. institutions, social movements, and everyday workers dispirited by the crushing momentum of extractive platforms, private equity, and the unified will of the billionaire class judge the solidarity economy to be esoteric and marginal. Thankfully, even without institution building, communities respond to the ensuing economic crises with heroic and sundry mutual aid projects. Scenario 2. The World We Know 2.0 Limited Progress But there's another direction in which a status quo world could go. What follows is a best-case scenario if the world we know persists. Obstruction and marginalization aren't inevitable. It's possible that with a sound foundation of research and experimentation, the leaders, institutions, and infrastructure of the solidarity economy prove sufficient for some significant evolution. In this scenario, the impact by 2035 is impressive but uneven. Developments are clustered in certain sectors of the economy and in specific regions of the country that either already had a strong local ecosystem or leadership and infrastructure friendly to experimentation, innovation, and resourcing of new approaches to economic problems. Here, the establishment of public banks has proven to be impactful, unlocking capital for both the proliferation of worker and community-owned enterprises and large-scale innovations in social housing, green retrofits, and post-carbon energy democracy. Young politicians have found ample support to test out community benefit agreements, permanent real estate cooperatives, tuition-free public colleges, universal childcare programs, and democratic municipal energy and broadband utilities in progressive cities. Historical strongholds of worker and consumer-owned cooperatives like Ohio, California, Western North Carolina, Southern Wisconsin, New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Pacific Northwest grow fivefold. Worker co-ops grow from about 1,000 firms in 2022 to 5,000, thanks to a burgeoning ecosystem of cooperative leaders, technical assistance providers, business leagues, employee ownership centers, and community development organizations. 80% of the growth in the field is concentrated in these places, but the standout case is Colorado. The Centennial State, a nascent ecosystem but in 2020, by 2035 becomes a beacon of innovation for models of employee ownership. Leadership from the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, Amicus Solar 20, a new Colorado state chapter of the United States Federal Federation of Worker Cooperatives, USFWC, and iconoclastic lawyers, organizers, and politicians open the way for a wave of legal experimentation in the democratic economy. This leads to cohorts of platform co-ops, refugee and immigrant-owned co-ops, and multi-stakeholder co-ops, including those with easy pathways for investor classes. The state and local governments partner with these experiments, forming public acquisition funds to purchase business assets and eventually sell them from founders to workers or community owners. Not every experiment is a success, but Colorado's confluence of leaders, 
institutions and infrastructure over a period of 15 years, pioneers a dozen breakthrough strategies that make it the home of more worker platform and community-owned cooperatives than any other state, surpassing even Massachusetts, New York, and California. Perhaps the biggest realization among the existing community of solidarity economy practitioners is the importance of protecting and defending the gains and infrastructure built during the first third of the 21st century. With increased visibility, the associations, coalitions, and federations of new economy organizations band together with renewed solidarity. Together, they commit to funding their own membership organizations, including representing the field in the media and legislative spaces, and against attacks from traditional corporate firms that have fallen out of favor among a shifting consumer base expressly concerned with a sustainable post-capitalist future. Scenario 3. The world shaken up. Collapse. Of course, rather than continuity of a stable status quo, volatile disruption is all but certain. What remains speculative is the nature and valence of the change, the extent of it, and its impact on prospects to democratize the economy. An upheaval of this elevated magnitude could spin in a positive or negative direction, but turmoil of some flavor is coming and bears some consideration. Since 2020, it was easy enough to sense the multitude of disturbances on the horizon, problems poised to overwhelm existing systems. But it wasn't easy to pinpoint any single upset that would lead to collapse. It could have been catalyzed by any one or combination of wicked climate conditions, rise of militarized surveillance and authoritarianism, unaccountable financial and fossil fuel corporations, monopolistic concentrations of capital and intellectual property, new waves of racial justice uprising and subsequent fascist backlash, ruinous debt, a compounding housing crisis, and a new flux of human migration in response to droughts, floods, famines, heat waves, wars, and public health outbreaks. Each compounding crisis hollows out the working class and further fractures workers and communities, leading to a tipping point. The burden on communities is fatiguing. Nonetheless, our crisis response systems within the solidarity economy and its ability to fill in the cracks, including co-ops for this purpose, offer some respite to the many left behind by rapacious economic system. Worker-directed nonprofits, land trusts, community practices like participatory budgeting, and employee-owned businesses are resilient enough that disorder does not lead to our ecosystem's total demise. Democratic economic institutions that survive do so because they meet a community need or solve a pressing problem. When energy and food systems, labor conditions, and social institutions collapse, we eventually see a substantial turn to a solidarity economy, even if in all but name. Overwrought systems of control and consolidation evoke interest in mutuality as a countervailing force. In the 2020s, this was initially very weak, but by 2030, small efforts demonstrate potential to grow and thereby potential to rebuild a set of institutions and infrastructure to nurture a new solidarity economy. However, this growth in mutual economic activity, catalyzed as it is by exclusion and opposition, 
and taking place amid the collapse of mainstream institutions, does not have political support, at least not initially. Only over time does a political party and even a movement begin to grow around the principles of solidarity economics. A new generation of politicians centers the question of democratizing the economy and explicitly works to counter the corporate power and consolidation of ownership. A political program begins to form under very difficult conditions. And scenario four, the world evolved. Transformation. As Arundhati Roy said at the beginning of the pandemic, it is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. Along with the racial justice uprisings and the climate crisis, the early 2020s force us to more fundamentally reckon with ourselves and our relationships to land and work. This leads to a watershed of abolitionist modalities, land back, reparations, transformative justice, worker power, community ownership, social housing, just transitions, renewed global solidarity, which we use to step through that portal. While these practices start in the cracks and margins as crises intensify and people need the answers to how they and their communities are going to survive, they blossom into genuine and necessary alternatives. As above, a new generation of politicians centers the question of democratizing the economy and explicitly works to counter corporate power and consolidation of ownership. They lean in hard with political will and some power, and the leaders, institutions, and infrastructure of the democratized economy are there to meet them, inform their vision, and help their impulse take shape into a political program. This scenario is different from the others in two critical ways. First, the institutions of government and the economy don't reach a point of collapse. Second, the will of the people to democratize the economy continues to grow. They can't be ignored as they unionize, build their own institutions, elect new politicians, and demand a stronger and more accountable role for the public sector in providing for the needs of people and communities. After workers at Starbucks and Amazon teach us that we have the power to take on the owning class and win, grassroots labor strategies go viral across the board. Government partners with the democratic economic institutions to meet real needs, bringing resources and regulatory powers to support the growth of care cooperatives, social housing, and food systems. The Department of Labor's Platform Cooperatives Division supports that growth. Alongside union drives at corporate retailers across the country, platform co-ops are able to offer gig workers genuine pathways out of precarity towards ownership, benefits, and community. The Small Business Administration's Shared Ownership Division dedicates debt and even equity pools for cooperatives. The Department of Transportation undertakes infrastructure projects in partnership with the solidarity economy sector and prioritizes cooperatives in procurement. It funds robust institutions to meet community needs more efficiently, and the economy is democratized at many levels. These speculative visions are intended to give some texture, informing how the work of organizing for a democratic economy will play out within the context of broader trends and drivers of change. But it remains true that the future is still fundamentally open to us to continue to plan and shape. 
We can and should always approach the work from the starting place of an aspirational vision that can orient our collective strategies. An honest assessment of the current state of the economic democracy in the United States leads us to conclude that we are, per the scenarios above, currently toggling between obstruction and limited progress in a world that is on the brink of collapse by several metrics. So how do we get to transformation? Specifically, how do we use the tools of policy to remove the obstacles and foster democratic economic organization throughout the U.S. economy? Our strategy encompasses three interdependent strands. First, we must create access to and parity across democratic economic forms. Second, we aim to unlock advantages and unique supports for broad-based ownership. Third, we contend for power within the larger economic system to displace undemocratic, exploitative, and wealth-concentrating forms and practices. Each strategy has its own logic and tactics, but this is not an either-or proposition. It is a both-and approach. To be effective at creating the conditions we know to be possible, we must do all three things. Access. Access to existing institutions of support is the first ask. Parity with conventional forms of small business and individual ownership is simply a matter of fairness for all actors in a diversified economy. Worker cooperatives should be able to access SBA 7A loan programs without a personal guarantee. Credit unions should be able to do business lending above the current 12.25% cap that effectively kneecaps them from competing with banks. MBA programs should include courses on broad-based ownership. Unions should be able to associate, organize, and collectively bargain free of interference, intimidation, and reprisal. The frame is simple. Economic institutions with shared ownership based in democratic values exist and deserve access too. The tactics are relatively straightforward. Use data and numbers to show that we exist and framing to make the case that we should be included. Persuade validating institutions, trade associations, think tanks, and educational institutions and the media to bring us under the mainstream umbrella. Ultimately, this is a numbers game. There are enough of us and we generate enough revenue or employ enough people to provide enough services that you should acknowledge we exist and include us in your supports. The modest accomplishment of the Main Street Employee Ownership Act, MSEOA, was precisely this. It served to alert the Small Business Administration that employee-owned businesses exist and directed it to make programs available to worker co-ops, including worker cooperatives and eligibility for PPP funds by temporarily waiving the SBA requirement for a personal guarantee was another example of parity. Both recent advances were critically important. They were also wholly inadequate for removing the obstacles faced by shared ownership forms. At the mercy of mainstream institutions for inclusion, Broad-based ownership forms will always be vulnerable and marginal. Democratic economic institutions risk looking like inferior businesses, stuck forever trying to prove our legitimacy, instead of the powerful, human-centered engines of community resilience we know them to be. Depending on the prevailing political winds, our options within this frame range from indifferent acceptance to uncomfortable alliance to cute window dressing. Advantage. A stronger way forward is to shift the frame, 
position a democratic economic institution as an active solution where others have failed, and then craft policy that creates advantages based on those strengths. Anywhere in the world the economy has democratized at scale, it has been because advocates successfully made the case that shared ownership plays a unique role in meeting public needs and therefore should access unique public supports. The frame is ambitious. Cooperatives and other mutual forms solve problems better than profit-maximizing forms can, and in some cases, better than the public sector can or is willing to. The tactics are sophisticated, articulate a clear vision, undertake demonstration projects, develop a policy strategy to leverage the success of values-driven, community-serving, and democratically-controlled shared ownership strategies, and start making friends. We can show how broad-based ownership forms meet worker and community needs both more effectively and holistically. Allies in the industry, sector, or place already doing advocacy around the issues that cooperatives address can help make the case. The U.S. Department of Treasury's inclusion of employee ownership provisions in its implementation of the Federal State Small Business Credit Initiative, SSBCI, constitutes an acknowledgement that conversions to employee ownership are a real solution to the problem of business closure and should therefore have dedicated access to capital. California's pending Expanding Employee Ownership Act, which would provide funding for education, technical assistance, and other supportive resources for conversions, employs the same logic, as do state-funded employee ownership programs. The key here is to include cooperatives and other democratized economic forms in initiatives to solve real problems. And to do that, we cannot focus on cooperatives or employee ownership or land trusts alone. We must focus on the problems they solve best and build relationships with communities and organizations already working on those issues. In 2022, there are clear and pressing unmet needs in whole sectors where profit-maximizing models have proven a poor fit, left gaping holes in the social safety net, and actually weakened the economy. These include child care, home care, elder care, transit, the arts, job creation for excluded workers, and business owner retirement. For example, Cooperative Home Care Associates provides better care because its worker-owned company provides better jobs. This is why they and their partners have access to substantial workforce development funding to train home care workers. United Taxi Cab Cooperative of San Diego, a project of United Taxi Workers of San Diego that was incorporated in 2021, is building its business model around providing affordable and ethical last-mile transit to hospitals that are not consistently served by corporate ride-hailing services and is exploring an anchor contract with the city. Rapid response cooperatives provide income pathways for excluded workers who are also often essential workers. This is why multiple cities and counties are funding their development. Meeting needs is not the heavy lift. The challenge is building the ecosystem that can stand up to predatory competition. Cooperatives are designed to meet member and community needs. They spring up where a need is not being met, and they often meet that need better than profit-maximizing business can. Sadly, there has been a trend of cooperatives building a market that is later captured by corporate actors. You have cooperatives to thank for access to healthy foods and co-working spaces both now almost entirely controlled by corporate giants. 
This evolution was not inevitable, but it is what happens when we fail to recognize and make the argument that some economic forms are better suited to meeting some needs and providing public goods, and therefore should be privileged, supported, and incentivized to grow. It's what happens when we limit our ask to access and don't press for advantage. Cooperative advocates often point to the cooperative advantage. Local, state, and federal governments can recognize this advantage by giving cooperatives and other democratic economy forms specific preferential treatments in procurement, contracting, licensing, and access to affordable capital, among many other elements of business. Power. Ultimately, we want to make the case that democratic economic institutions must contend for power and aim to change the economic system overall. Accepting that we exist and granting access to existing programs is a start. Acknowledging that we do some things better and therefore conferring some advantages is progress. But the policy work that will ensure the long-term democratization of the economy should aim to realign public investments, supports, and commitments to serve human and community needs, not outside investors. The frame is expansive. Our vision understands democratic economic institutions as one piece of a much larger strategy to build power. This cannot be accomplished alone. A transformative approach requires a great degree of active, functional solidarity that connects high road solutions to broader demands to limit extractive practices and police bad actors. Shared ownership advocates must see ourselves as part of a labor movement, a fair housing movement, a movement to change how capital flows, and immigrants' rights and racial justice movements. We work together in a strategic, coordinated way with base building and member-serving organizations. Our asks are grounded not just in the cooperative advantage, but in what will benefit whole workforces, industries, and communities. Some examples. When home care cooperatives partner with the National Domestic Workers Alliance to advocate for better conditions and raising the minimum wage for all home care workers, and point to their own cooperatives as an example that good jobs in the industry are possible. When the National League of Cities promotes shared ownership strategies to its members as part of a community resilience strategy. When labor, cooperative, and immigrants' rights advocates inform the California Department of Labor's priorities to unlock millions of dollars for shared entrepreneurship strategies for excluded workers. None of these efforts are exclusively about specific models, but rather about democratizing the economy writ large and working together to create the ecosystem of support that business, economic, and community development projects will use to do so. There is a sequencing question here. We may seem to be implying that you start with aiming for access and build up to advantages and power, but we think this would be a mistake. In fact, we see the process as iterative. All three strategies must be operative at all times, in varying proportions, as gains are made in one area, possibilities open up in another, and build to bigger opportunities. Back in the latter part of the 20th century, when democratic economic institutions conceived of themselves as a, quote, alternative, there wasn't much of a policy ask. Our world, the worker cooperative sector, operated with a general indifference and even occasionally an understandable hostility to government, 
The implicit vision was that the alternative could grow to displace undemocratic economic institutions. This seemed feasible under different conditions than today's. There was space for an alternative to survive and even thrive that simply doesn't exist under the totalizing institutions of late capitalism. But in 2022, to be solely an alternative is to be able to spot your own demise right over the horizon. To respond to these multiple overlapping crises with clarity of vision is to choose to survive and thrive. Our explicit vision is for an economy in which all people have access to ownership and control of the institutions that sustain us, work, land, home, care, education. This is not a utopian vision. It is not an alternative. It is possible and it is necessary. There is no shortage of crises to address and democratic economic institutions thrive in times of crisis. Our challenge to ourselves and to you is first to assert this vision and aim for embedding it in policy and then to get to work building the relationships of active functional solidarity that will help bring this vision to reality. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Or you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more, including all of the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And this is Commoner's Choir with the song Take Back the Commons for your moment of zen. Thanks for listening. Step by step, step by step, arable farm to retail zone.